short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back to the Cold War. <laughs> I think it's an iPod you're using. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to know where I've got my ice pack, boys and girls, but it's very hot and humid in Cam's little studio today, so I put some, I got an ice pack out and I put it somewhere that's strategically waking located. me up. Yeah. Yeah. How are you, buddy? I'm doing okay. I am the exact opposite. We had a very warm day today, but it's starting to cool off now, so a little chilly, but I'll survive. Mm -hmm. In 1913, Ray, I don't know if you know this, but in Mm. 1913, H.G. Wells wrote a book called The World Set Free. Oh, sounds like a nice title. It's a lovely title. He worked on it for a long time, right? I think he spent a year coming up with the title, only a couple of hours writing the book. That was the easy part. Coming up with the title took him a long time. The novel, go ahead. The novel, the novel begins. The history of mankind is the history of the attainment of external power. Man is the tool-using, fire-making animal, always down a lengthening record, save for a setback ever and again, he is doing more. And in the book, mm-hmm. the human race develops an atomic bomb. Mm-mm. Now, this was written in 1913. Wow. How did you know about that? Now, Go ahead, sorry. <laughs> I'm glad you asked, Ray. It's like, <laughs> you've seen my notes. Uh, a few years earlier... <laughs> The chemist, Frederick Soddy, British chap, had published a book about the properties of radium, which Wells had read. Now, Soddy and some others, mostly Brits, including Ernest Rutherford, who will come up again in -hmm. the show, um, had uh, understood that the Decay of radium is is slow. The radioactive decay of radium is slow, continues for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And, and while the rate of energy release during that radioactive decay is negligible, over a period of time, the total amount of energy that it releases is huge. And Wells, Wells got to wondering, what if you could release all of that energy quickly at once in a second? Mm-hmm. 
and thus he wrote his book as an exploration of uh, what that would mean. Now, he got a lot of the details wrong, obviously. I mean, for a start, plutonium, the fissile material used in the first atomic explosions, wasn't actually discovered until 1941. Mm-hmm. And his atomic bombs really have about the same sort of force as an ordinary high explosive. And the way that you set off your atomic bomb in his books is like, it's a bit like a grenade. You bite a little uh, celluloid stud off the top of it and then hurl it at someone. Here, bite this. Yeah. He did say, though, that a man could carry about in a handbag an amount of latent energy sufficient to wreck half a city. So a little bit more, you know, like lots of TNT, no, right. not, not not necessarily the, the what we think of as an atomic weapon, but because uh, it was going to wreck more than half a city. But uh, again, he was they were handheld. Now I don't know about a handbag, but suitcase bombs certainly became a thing. Yeah. In the nineteen sixties, uh, the US built a tiny nuclear device called a Saddam, which I love. They go, what are we going to call it? Let's call it after Saddam Hussein, because we're fucking love. In the 60s, they loved Saddam, thought he was awesome. Um, Let's call it Saddam. It was the Special Atomic Demolition Munition. Special Atomic Demolition Munition. I mean, that's hard to say fast. Demolition Munition. Demolition Munition, Demolition Munition, Demolition Munition. Especially with chilled cojones. The, the Saddam. Uh, tell me what you know about the Saddam, Ray. Uh, that was more than I know. I know um, it's obviously bigger than a hand grenade. It uh, weighs, what, around just a little less than 100 pounds. Could fit into a duffel bag or a large case. And was designed, sadly enough, for its sabotage missions. Airfields, bridges, dams, basically to wreck the infrastructure of your enemy. Now tell me how much you know about it without looking at my notes, Ray. Oh, Diddly squat. <laughs> I told you, don't look at my notes. I use I have a different book with different information, so my emphasis is elsewhere. So uh, I panicked. <laughs> uh, we'll be going into battle. Okay, now listen, right? Yeah. Whatever you do, don't don't shoot me in the back when we go in there. Okay. Ah, oh, yeah. No All worries. Right. No, no, no. I'm not going to shoot, gonna shoot in the back. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> you should be like, what happened? Oh, I panicked. Thanks. That's great. Fucking great, Ray. It fit into a duffel bag or a large case. Uh, it had an explosive charge of roughly 1,000 tons of TNT or one kiloton of TNT. Now, the Ruskies also developed a suitcase bomb around about the same time. We know this because the highest ranking GRU defector Stanislav Lunev mm-hmm. has said that suitcase nukes might already be deployed by GRU GRU fuck I can't even talk this morning GRU operatives on US soil to assassinate US leaders in the event of a war. Ah, uh, damn that's scary. Without going into Without going into too many details, uh, he said that they built these things and they they designed to last forever, mm-hmm. um, and they they will they're powered up. But if they run out of power, they will send a signal to an undercover 
GRU operative somewhere in the in in the US right. who will go and top up the batteries or whatever it is and then uh, take fancy. off again. Yeah. Um, and they've got these scattered all over the world, lots of different countries. They've got hidden suitcase nuclear bombs just ready, and they can be activated remotely. And this is the best thing. They are booby-trapped with what is known in Russian as Molnia or lightning uh, explosive devices. I think Molnia mm-hmm. uh, in Russian is lightning, like it's the fucking name of Thor's hammer. They go, oh, let's come up with a word for lightning. I don't know. Let's name it after <laughs> Thor's hammer because that's fucking awesome. Um, yeah. Bo- yeah. I, I'm sorry, but I, I see a flaw here. If I go to open up one and the lightning hits me and it doesn't kill me, there's a pretty good chance I'm going to get some superpowers. <laughs> now, just like Mad Max's Interceptor, there's a specific sequence of actions that you have to take. Mm-hmm. in order to render these devices safe before you can open or move them. Right. Uh, otherwise, they're just going to they're gonna detonate. Now, n- not a nuclear detonation, uh, probably, because, you, know, you know, a nuclear explosion takes a certain sequence of events to occur. Right. But um, I love that. And in fact, uh, there was one in 1992, KGB archivist Vasily Mitrokin, defected to the UK and brought with him 30 years of handwritten archives. Uh, Now, he identified the location of one hidden suitcase uh, somewhere near Bern in Switzerland. didn't have a bomb in it, but it had a radio transmitter. So uh, I think a spy could communicate back to Mother Russia um, when those, you know, when you couldn't just do that via a text message. Um, he told the Swiss authorities where it was. They they found it, sprayed it with a high pressure water cannon, mm-hmm. and it and it exploded. Wow! Um, again, it wasn't a nuclear weapon. This one it was a suitcase. But they haven't found any of the. As far as we know, they haven't found any of these uh, hidden suitcase bombs. But that's good to know. That scattered well, across yeah. the US, there might be suitcase nuclear bombs still just sitting there waiting, so, waiting. So what? What's what's worse to have the enemy? Have have nuclear bombs scattered throughout your country, or the enemy has a video of your president being peed on by hookers. Uh, well, a the last one I don't think ever happened. If it if it had, we'd have it. We'd know about it by now. We'd have seen it. Um, sec, yeah. Okay, so the um, first one, I got you. But but whenever you see footage of uh, Vladimir Putin, mm-hmm. um, and 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 you know the Americans are giving him a hard time, or whatever, and you know he's always just got this little smirk on his face. He never looks. He's never flustered. No, he's just got this. He's calm as fuck. He's got this little smirk. That's because he's going. I have suitcase bombs scattered all over your fucking country. Just keep it up, and we'll see who has the last laugh, motherfucker. I am king of the world. When I have finished torturing you by corrupting your democracy and making you all lose your fucking minds, and that, quite frankly, I did nothing. All I had to do was give you a little smirk, and you went, oh, my God, he's corrupted democracy. All I had to do was just give you my, my, my bad boy smirk. That's all it is. You're so scared of bad boys. Um, the lightest nuclear warhead ever acknowledged to have been manufactured by the U.S. is the W-54. Mm. which, check this out, fit into an 11-inch by 16-inch cylinder, which for um, non-Americans is 28 centimetres by 41 centimetres. Now, I have my uh, trusty wooden 
uh, fold out uh, yard ruler here or, or meter ruler that I keep on my desk to remind myself. Oh, well, actually, it's a back scratcher. My Rabone Chesterman. Uh, number 1162, made in England, paint number 1173229, just in case you're wondering. Right. Um, so let's look at uh, 11 inches. Wow, that's Do you want to see fucking... 11? Oh, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. Call D'Angelo in here, will you? D'Angelo, come hey, in. Hey, that hurt. 11 inches by 16, wow. So that's, that's you could fit that into a shoebox, basically. That's a shoebox. Yeah, um, Sized nuclear weapon. Uh, weighed 51 pounds or 23 kilograms. Um, so you can get me walking around with the shoebox. Take him down. Uh, yeah. Anyway, back to Wells' book. He yeah. said his bombs made a mighty thunder in the air and fell like Lucifer. They produced tremendous pillars of fire. Hard upon the sound of them, came a roaring wind, and the sky was filled with flickering lightnings and rushing clouds. They destroyed buildings like a scythe cutting down grass, while mountainous clouds billowed up into the air. Mm. Pretty fucking prophetic. I'm starting yeah. to think H.G. Wells actually had a time machine. Exactly. <laughs> Went back to Los Alamos, yeah. The book was published in 1914, just as World War One was starting. Now... 1932, Hungarian physicist Leo Szilard, a big fan of Wells, read the book. Mm. And the following year, he realised that you could indeed make an atomic bomb. And that's the story we're going to tell over the next uh, three <laughs> years, maybe six episodes. Kids, next three to six hours yeah. is going to be about the Manhattan Project. Um, Not 25. So, yeah. so settle in. Right. Um, get comfy. And, yeah, get comfy. Yeah. Because uh, it's a great, I mean, it, uh, yeah, obviously, as we've said many times, the development of nuclear weapons and the use of them by the Americans and not sharing the secrets with the Soviets is probably uh, a fair point to say this is the real beginning of the Cold War. Changed right. the world forever. We're still living under nuclear the threat of nuclear destruction today. So I think it's uh, justifiable um, that we that we tell this story. If I could start the uh, my my version of this story about the atomic bomb with some quotes for some from some great scientists. Uh, no. Okay. Before you go, before wow. you do that, I yeah, wanted yeah. to say that yeah. <laughs> in the first memorandum, yeah, pa passed to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, outlining the possibility of making a bomb, which was the letter was co-authored by Leo Szilard and um, Albert Einstein. The first citation in it is to H.G. Wells's "The World Set Free." So, um, do, you, do you think that was to give FDR a reference point, point since he, he's probably heard of that book? He's certainly heard of the author. You think, you know, because he's not a scientist. Do you think that was just to give him a just something he could focus on and to make it make sense for him? Uh, no, 
I, may, I think it's just a literary device. Um, maybe they said, listen, this guy predicted War of the Worlds and we know that happened, <laughs> so <laughs> this could probably happen too, man. Yeah, he might be too uh, far out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so go on with your yeah. quotes. So, I just, yeah, I just had some stuff. This is some, some pretty neat stuff. Um, Louis Pasteur, the French biologist, microbiologist, chemistress, chem- chemist, Chemistrist. I mean, it's I, the I, female I chemist. The, is I a chemistrist going. So uh, yeah, you mm-hmm. know, pasteurization, fermentation, vaccination, all that good stuff. He would he would advise his students when they were preparing to write up their discoveries to make it seem inevitable, because all discoveries that are made are inevitable. Humans always seek to know what comes next, and that's the same with science. Niels Bohr, the Danish physicist who contributed to the uh, understanding of the atomic structure, structure said, knowledge in itself is the basis for civilization. You cannot have one without the other. The one depends on the other. Nor can you have any, nor can you have only benevolent knowledge. The scientific method doesn't filter for benevolence. Knowledge has consequence, not always intended, not always comfortable, not always welcome. And it would be Rob, Robert Oppenheimer who would say the best, let's see here, I'm sorry, let me try that again. It would be Rob, Robert Oppenheimer who would say that the deep things in science are not found because they are useful. They are found because it is possible to, to find them. And that's certainly true for the atomic bomb. To stop it, you would have to stop physics. If German scientists hadn't just made the discovery when they did, some other country scientists would have done so, almost certainly within days or weeks. They were all looking for the same thing, trying to understand the strange results of a simple experiment of bombarding uranium with neutrons. So again, these guys... They they cherish the discoveries. They find it exciting. They want to know what comes next. But before we're done with this series, you're going to see that almost all of these guys then had second thoughts. What are we doing? What is the government going to do with it? But at the same time, they can't help but thinking we have to beat Germany because we know Germany is working on this. And we know what Germany will do with this if they get it first. So these guys are going to have a, a conflict of conscience, but they're going to have to move on because... Nazi Germany is not ever going to stop trying to win this war any way they can. Didn't the Americans use an atomic weapon to stop the Pacific War by using a nuclear weapon to obliterate? Yes, we did. Well, one person made that decision. I wonder what would have happened. So you're saying saying the Nazis could have been as bad as the Americans if they got their hands on a nuclear weapon? Yes, but I, I don't know if they would have stopped with just one country or whatever. But um, the point is, you're absolutely right. We used it. No one else did. But it was that fear that knowing that there was certainly no restraint on Nazi Germany, what they would have done if they had the uh, weapon first. And that's mm-hmm. what drove these scientists. But again, they, they were certainly conflicted as they were working, as we're going to see time and time again. Getting back to HG for a second, in his book, the... Atomic bombs were used in a war that pit an alliance of Britain, France, and America against Germany and Austria. Uh, and the war took place in 1956. Mm. Um, so he wasn't too far out, man. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, yeah. he pretty much picked the war and picked the sides yes. and, uh, you know, figured a bomb was going to get developed to, to be used in it. Uh, in, in the book, as a result, all the major cities of the world are destroyed. Uh, fortunately, that didn't happen yet. Although, you know, Donnie, Donnie's working on it. Um, then a conference is called in Switzerland where Britain's King Egbert, 
cool, man. Abdicates in favour of a United Nations-like world state. And then limitless atomic energy solves all of the world's problems, leaving the majority of the world's population to pursue careers as podcasters. He predicted that too. Like, it's fucking amazing, this book. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He's like and then he even yeah. wrote... And in 2018, maybe 19, somewhere around that, Cam and Ray will tell this story. I was reading this the other night. I was like, holy shit, man. Yeah. This guy had a fucking time machine. Who needs Nostradamus when you've got this guy? Exactly. HG died in August of 1946, a year after the atomic bomb had been used for the first time and 10 months after the United Nations had been established. So wow. he must have been going, I did it. Pretty good job at calling that one. Of course, it didn't play out exactly as he prophesied, but uh, let's go back and tell the de- story of the development of nuclear weapons um, from the beginning. So the story begins in the year 400 BCE. Uh, the Great War between Athens and uh, Persia. What? <laughs> Is this for Martin Darlington? Uh, for, uh, yeah, and Tony yeah. Kynaston, okay. yeah, yeah. Why in yeah. the hell did, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, now, we'll start this one in the early 20th century with New Zealand chemist Ernest Rutherford. Now, who said nothing good ever came out of that bunch of sheep fuckers? Uh, it wasn't <laughs> me. Maybe it was me a few times. But, but now uh, you stand corrected. Yeah. One day, while Rutherford was giving it to Bessie... <laughs> Uh, his favourite sheep, uh, surrounded by hobbits. Right. Um, <laughs> he became interested in radiation. Right. Um, maybe because Bessie the sheep was radiating hotness, and he was like, wow, I wonder what this is. <laughs> There's this, like, glow around her <laughs> butthole. I don't know. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Rotho got interested in um, radiation. Now, it, it came in three types. Alpha, beta, and Bessie the sheep. Now, alpha, beta, and gamma. Right. Now, alpha radiation was the one that they were mostly interested in because it comprised particles that had a tangible mass. And they were like, well, what is this mass and where is it coming from? Mm-hmm. What is causing these particles of tangible mass to be radiating uh, out of uh, elements like radium. And these alpha particles had a positive charge. And in 1907, he proved they were helium ions, atoms of helium, one of the primordial uh, elements in the Mm -hmm. universe, when the universe first cooled down from its state of hot plasma after the Big Bang. We were left with just hydrogen and Helium and every other element, as we all know, because we study our astrophysics, was created (laughs) when a sun somewhere in the universe went supernova. It's only in the collapsing of a large star that you get the required gravity to push the nuclei of hydrogen and helium together to create the other heavier elements. Now, at the time... Back in the early 20th century, atoms were thought to be solid objects. Mm-hmm. With they, they understood electrons at the time. They thought the electrons were stuck inside of the atom, 
like raisins in a plum pudding. And in fact, it was known as the, or it is known as the plum pudding model. Mm. Somebody was eating a bit of plum pudding one day and they went, Hey, hold on a second. (laughs) If it's good for plum pudding, it's It's good for the atom. Good enough for physics. Right, exactly. So, Ravo began firing alpha particles at a thin sheet of gold to see what happened. And now, he thought energy particles were just uh, energy. The, the, the energetic particles would pass right through, mm-hmm. but some bounced back. Now, he said it was almost as incredible as if you fired a 15-inch shell at a piece of tissue paper and it came back and hit you. Mm. Now, this meant that the atom couldn't be a uniform solid, and he concluded that it must be largely made up of empty space with most of its mass concentrated around a tiny nucleus. It was like a mini solar system. And he came to this conclusion in 1911. Rutherford is therefore known as the father of nuclear physics and sheep fucking. Go New Zealand. Go New Zealand. They tend to leave that last part off because it's too long to fit on a business card. So it's just father of nuclear physics. Yeah, good call. A couple of years later, Niels Bohr, you mentioned before, very boring fellow, Niels Bohr, uh, <laughs> Danish physicist. If you ever met a Dane, you, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so boring. Realized that the chemical properties of an atom are caused by the electron that orbit the nucleus and that the radiation comes from the nucleus itself. And so they're starting to build the atomic model, these, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is now known these days quite often as the Rutherford model or the Bohr model. But in 1919, Rutherford discovered that if you shot alpha particles at nitrogen atoms, you could turn them into oxygen atoms. Mm. Now, this is the first time one element had been deliberately changed into another. He was therefore also the world's first successful Alchemist. So his business card then read <laughs> Ernest Rutherford, father of nuclear physics, sheep fucking, and the world's first alchemist. Dot, dot, dot. Because there might be suck more. On, yeah, suck on these nuts, bitches. <laughs> um, now, the process of changing nitrogen into oxygen gave off another particle, and he realized that these were the nuclei of hydrogen atoms, which were later called just protons, one proton in the nucleus of a hydrogen atom. Gotcha. So that's where the idea of protons came from, rather, good old rather. Um, now, I was going to jump forward to 1932, but you, you had something in between there? Yeah, let me, let me mention uh, Hungarian physicist Leo Szilard in the summer of uh, Szilard. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right. Summer of 1921, he's working on his thesis. Uh, thesis. Uh, it's something that he doesn't find very interesting. His sponsor gives him a problem to solve, something to do with uh, relative uh, relativity. He's not very excited about that. He starts thinking about, about other things just because that's the way his mind works. He eventually will come up with his uh, dissertation about information theory and thermodynamics. It's all very impressive, but in the 1920s he does, something else catches his fancy, and that's nuclear physics, the study of the nucleus 
of the atom, where most of its mass and therefore its energy is concentrated. And as we're going to find out, Leo was a great thinker. He wasn't a great doer, but he is going to patent an invention invention in uh, January 1929 that could be called a cyclotron. It's a device for accelerating nuclear particles in a circular magnetic field. So like this this New Zealand chap, other people are thinking about it as well. Other people are thinking about separating these things, different ways of going about it. Again, he, he, he he patents it. He doesn't do anything with it. He moves on. But again, there are others in the field who are who are, and and this is happening in every obviously every country out there that uh, that that's going to be concerned in World War Two. And so there are others out there. And so the race, even though these people don't know it, in some ways is already on because everybody's coming at this same problem from different directions. In 1932, the British physicist James Chadwick, Chado, to his mates, um, discovered that there were other particles being emitted from bombarding uh, atoms with, with other particles that had no charge at all. Proton had a positive charge, electron had a negative charge. There was one that had no charge. He called them no-chargey things. <laughs> Which didn't stick. Uh, uh, didn't stick. So you had to bring in Barry and Stan. They, you know, they went over it. Yeah. Uh, they said, uh, does it have any charge? He went, no. <laughs> they went, no. No. no well, we've got electrons. <laughs> Protons. We'll call it new. No. Neutrons. Neutrons. Close. Yeah. Close. Yeah. 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 Neutrons. He was working. For which. I'm sorry, go for ahead. which, for which, Chado received the 1935 Nobel Prize for Physics, and the atomic model was complete. Right. And as we go through this series, pretty much every name we drop, these guys are going to win Nobel Prizes left and right. So it's going to be pretty impressive until we get to one particular man who does not have a Nobel Prize, and that will present a problem in the future. Anyways, as far as Chadwick goes, he was working at the Cavendish Laboratory of Cambridge University, uh, where, like you said, he confirmed the existence of the neutron. Uh, he said the neutron, a particle with nearly the same mass as the positively charged proton, had no electric charge, which meant it could pass through the surrounding electrical barrier and into the nucleus. The neutron would open the atomic nucleus to examination. It might even be a way to force the nucleus to give up some of its enormous energy. So again, these guys are going to get in closer and closer and closer and because they're scientists, because they're not in the military, they're going to share their notes with everybody. They're going to write them and put them out there. And a lot of people are going to run with these ideas. And as we're going to see, the military of various countries are not very happy about this open exchange of ideas. Yeah, and I, I think it is interesting that the British did a lot of the early work here, figuring mm-hmm. it all out. Yeah. Um, also in 1932, two of Rutherford's students, John Cockroft and Ernest Walton, became the first guys in history to split the atom. Nice. In the same year, the first cyclotron was actually built, but at Berkeley in California. Mm -hmm. Now, for those of you who don't know what a cyclotron is, it's basically a way of speeding up particles so they have enough energy that they can smash into some of the heavier nuclei and split them apart. This was important for further nuclear research. In order to see what happens when you smash apart atoms, you need to have high-energy beams, and that's what a cyclotron is for. And they discovered uh, that when you bombarded a nucleus with a proton, a small amount of matter 
was destroyed and converted into energy. This, of course, is explained by Einstein's famous formula, E equals mc squared, where E is the energy, M is the mass, C is the speed of light. How fast is the speed of light, Ray? Can you recall your uh, science training? What, why is why is 186,000 miles per second sticking in my head? I can't remember. Pretty, pretty good, Ray. Pretty because probably because you got it in your notes in front of you. I don't know. No, no, that was you truly have Wikipedia off, open. <laughs> the, fuck you. That was truly off the top of my head. I remember that from high school, but nothing else. Well done, son. Yeah, three hundred thousand kilometers a second, or seven six hundred and seventy million kilometers an hour. Mm. 300,000 kilometers a second is the speed of light. That's, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm no scientist or anything, but that sounds pretty fast to me. I'm no speed racer, but that's pretty. <laughs> and C squared would be that times itself, which is a very large number. So the amount of energy that's being created is a the very, very, very tiny piece of mass that's being lost here mm-hmm. multiplied by a huge fucking number. And that's that's just for that's... one atom. You can fit a few atoms into a bomb. Right. Uh, I don't know exactly how many. I think maybe 20 or 30, uh, maybe more. Right. I'm no physicist, right? Yeah. No. But there's a lot of atoms. Yeah, atoms are tiny, I believe. Very, very tiny. I heard it. I read somewhere atoms are tiny. Don't know if it's true. Could be just some of this fact-based thinking that uh, some <laughs> members of society had. Right. <laughs> it's on the decline. Thank and thank goodness for that. Thank the Lord for yeah, that. We don't want any of that fact-based. Thing. Too much. For more, for more of that modality of thinking, check out our Renaissance show. Um, now, in a speech, uh, I want to say that in 1932, while all of this is going on, the atom gets split, etc. Rutherford, Bohr, and Einstein didn't think there was any potential, at least in the near future, to capture this energy reaction for any practical purpose. The giants are saying, nah, nah, it's interesting, but I don't see it, you know, lighting up my house anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. not very practical. Um, in a speech in 1933, the same year Adolf Hitler came to power in Germany, Rutherford called the expectations that you would be able to do anything with this energy that resulted from uh, 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 splitting the atom, moonshine. All right. Um, Einstein compared uh, particle bombardment with shooting in the dark at scarce birds. <laughs> because the chances of hitting a nucleus during the bombard- bombardment process was about one in a million. Right. Because atoms are mostly empty space. I mean, the, the analogy I like, I think I used in my book, The Three Illusions, was something like if you, if you, if you blew up an atom to the size of a, a football field... The electrons would be at the outer gates, the entry gates to the football stadium. Right. The nucleus would be about the size of a watermelon sitting in the middle of the in the middle of the field. Mm. That's how much empty space there is That's in an atom, which yeah, they're like ninety nine point nine 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 percent empty space, and you are made up of those things, Ray, which means you are ninety nine point nine 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 percent empty space, which explains a lot. It does. However, I would like to interject uh, Leo Cislardi again, because he was not very happy with uh, 
with uh, Rutherford's uh, moonshine comment. He said, Lord Rutherford has reported to have said that whoever talks about the liberation of atomic energy on an industrial scale is talking moonshine. Pronouncements of experts to the effect that something cannot be done has always irritated me. This sort of set me pondering as I was walking down the streets of London, and I remember stopping at a red light at the intersection of Southampton Row, and I was wondering whether Lord Rutherford might be proved wrong. And his idea to prove him wrong was, instead of using massive temperatures, maybe it was possible to start a chain reaction. It suddenly occurred to me that if we could find an element with which to split, um, which is split by neutrons and which would emit two neutrons, when it absorbs one neutron, such an element, if assembled in sufficiently large mass, could sustain a nuclear chain reaction. The problem was, he didn't know how to do it yet. And again, like he had before with his cyclotron patent, patent he has this idea, he's onto something, but he's not the most, he's not, he's not a plotter. He's not going to sit down and do all these tons of experiments that, experiments that he needs to do to prove this. But again, someone else is going to be willing to do all the work. And he's going to be frustrated. But again, uh, Leo Cislard is impressive with his theories so far. I used to tell my father, nothing is impossible. He'd say, really? Stick your ass out the window and then run around outside and throw rocks at it. Oh, that's a deep thinker. I have been trying to do that every day of my life since. I'm getting close. (laughs) Getting very close. Do you set aside like five minutes each day and... I do. Okay, uh, yeah, don't. little alarm goes off. I go right. Today's the <laughs> day. Today's the day I'm going to prove George wrong. I can believe. I believe I can fly. <laughs> I believe I can stick my ass out the window, <laughs> run around for a rocket. Um, the next year, 1934, Enrico Fermi. Fermi. <laughs> Who was he working for? I working for me. Fermi. <laughs> All of the money for me, he used to say. Yeah, and he used to annoy the shit out of people. Um, Was working at Mussolini's Accademia d'Italia in Rome. Mm -hmm. Um, He tried using neutrons instead of protons to bombard the nucleus. As you said before, they figured out, some of them, that because the neutron uh, had a neutral charge, it meant it had a better chance of not being rejected by the positive charge of the protons in the nucleus. He also figured out a way to slow the neutrons down By playing during disco? the bombardment. Oh, sorry. So, yes, using slowed-down neutrons, figuring the more time they spent near the nucleus the better chance they had of being intercepted by the nucleus. Now, one element Fermi tried bombarding was uranium, the heaviest Mm. of the elements. (laughs) Is it time for heavy metal? Yes! How did you know that? (laughs) Come on. I am in your head. I am in your pants. I am in your soul. (laughs) I don't know where I've got that. It's going on a coffee cup. Trilogy, really, a musical trilogy that I'm doing in D minor, which I always 
find is really the saddest of all keys, really. I don't know why, but it makes people weep instantly to play it. It's a horn part. It's very pretty. You know, just simple lines intertwining. You know, very much like I'm really influenced by Mozart and Bach, and it's sort of in between those. It's really, it's like a Mach piece, really. <laughs> what do you call this? Well, this piece is called uh, Lick My Love Pump. <laughs> <laughs> I've forgotten the title. <laughs> If I could, um, <laughs> if I could give a little more information about Fermi, oh, I forgot. I gotta go. I gotta go back and watch that entire film tonight. Thanks a lot. That's great. Two a.m. Oh no! Wait, wait. Yeah, don't don't move on yet. So. The heaviest of all the elements. Um, it was also the saddest of all the elements, uranium. Because <laughs> it's heavy, it's fat. It's the it's an obese Aww. element. No, it's and a people make fun of it. Day. Yeah, the other elements. Well, not true. I mean, you know, fat people can find love too, Ray. It's, you know, there are lots of uh, chubby chasers out there. I married to one. I'm fortunate that I'm married to a chubby chaser. Um, she has limits. She says if I become, you know, I right. reach my... Yeah. My goal of being full brand if I go full Brando, <laughs> then, th- that then, uh, uh, there's yeah. no sex um, from her anyway. No, but right. you know, she, somebody will, oh, right. somebody down under the bridge, middle of the night will, <laughs> will take it in the men's bathrooms <laughs> in the park. I'm sure. Whether they're but, awake um, or not, yeah. <laughs> whether they're alive or not, or they'll, no, they'll take it. Yeah. Um, so sorry, uh, Fermi was successful. Um, uh, uh, at getting the the nucleus of the uranium atoms to accept a neutron, he's like, take it, take my neutron, come on, come on, take it, take it, take it. You know you want it. If you didn't want it, you wouldn't address that way when you came to the party. Take it. You're asking for. Yeah, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be getting drunk. Um, but he didn't realize exactly what he'd done. Uh, the, the, the answer came out of Nazi Germany in late 1938. But pick up the story, right? Yeah. So if, anyway, I thought we were making science sexy. I think we're just making it sick and sad. Anyway, so a little bit more about Fermi, because I thought this was interesting. Uh, Robert, Robert Oppenheimer once described him as having a passion for clarity. He was simply unable to leave things be fo- let things be foggy. And since they always are, this kept him pretty busy. Now, Fermi rose to the ranks of the academia at the university, but the older professors didn't like him very much, and they didn't, they didn't appreciate his intelligence, so they tried to ignore him. However, Italy being what it was at the time, um, he was able to get a protector. Uh, he got uh, Orso Mario Corbino, the director of the University of Rome's Physics Institute, to protect him. He had his back, and together they decided to colonize the new territory of the frontier of physics. And they chose as their territory atomic, the atomic nucleus. So what they did was they gathered up, up a whole bunch of other young, eager professional uh, scientists, and they put them all over Europe. They sent them to, uh, to uh, Hamburg, Leipzig, uh, London. Uh, they l- worked with Lisa Meitner in Berlin. They went to Caltech in California, and they gathered all the information what these other labs are doing, brought it back. And that was one of the reasons, besides Fermi's uh, incredible work ethic, that they were able to make this... Uh, to make this advancement. And again, uh, Leo Cislard was going to do this because before, uh, 
before Fermi got to trying uranium, he tried a whole bunch of other uh, things. Before he tried um, using neutrons instead of protons to bombard the nucleus, he tried a lot of other substances, which Sizzler was going to do, but he thought <gasps> the entire process was boring, so he didn't go through with it. So he's lazy. He doesn't get it done. The Italian works hard. He gets the credit for making it happen, even though, like you said, they hadn't realized what they had accomplished. Tried a lot of substances, including weed, coke, um, LSD. Yeah, before he goes, well, let's get back to physics. Um, the only, pro- you know, the only problem with his collaboration with um, also Mario Carbino was was if he said his name out loud, you turn people into a newt. Also Mario Carbino. He pointed at them with a wand. Right. Uh, yeah, that a few to... times. Yeah. yeah, you could reverse it by saying his name backwards. Oh God. Oh God! Let me try. <laughs> and they they convert back. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. only happened five or six times before they worked out what was going on. Stop saying it. Uh, yeah. As I said, uh, Nazi Germany worked it out in 1938. Now, by that stage, Fermi had left Italy, which was becoming anti-Semitic, and he had won the 1938. Nobel Prize for his work on fission and used the prize money to establish himself in New York. Meanwhile, at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Berlin, run by Werner Heisenberg, Mm -hmm. one of the founders of quantum mechanics, there were two guys, uh, radio chemists, Otto Hahn and Fritz Stassmann. Mm -hmm. They had been bombarding elements with neutrons when they made an unexpected discovery. They found that the new elements that were produced when they bombarded uranium with neutrons were barium and lathanum. Mm. But there was a significant mass gap between the original uranium and the the resulting elements that were created afterwards. So if if you have, uh, I don't know what the uh, mass of uranium is, uh, let's let's look it up because we have the internet. The mass of uranium, I'm thinking it's uh, 92. Okay. 92 protons and 92 electrons in an atom of uranium. Mm-hmm. So you would, you would assume that when you split it apart, the resulting atoms, the mass of the resulting atoms, the barium and the lithanium, should have an atomic mass combined of 92. Right. You started with 92 yeah. protons, you should finish with you 92 protons. But they, yeah. but they didn't. There was, a, there, was, there was a gap. And they realized that a lot of energy must have been released. But they're only, they're only splitting one uranium atom, so the amount of energy that's released is, is not noticeable unless you're, you know, you're measuring it with right. a tiny little stick. Um, but <laughs> they realized what it... Now, two German physicists, you mentioned one before, a lady by the name of Lisa Meitner... Mm-hmm. who um, Meitner is actually a form of the word Meissner, which is actually uh, my, my maternal uh, uh, grandfather's name, oh. Meissner. Might be related, um, yeah. so, Might be related, but we're not Jews. We were, we were Polish Catholics, but well, anyway. <laughs> we're going to find out in just a minute when you finish that she didn't consider herself a Jew either, but I'll get to that in just a moment. I am circumcised, though, so, you know, and, you know, I'm happy to prove that if anyone... Any excuse. Take a look at that. Um, uh, uh, 
she, who was a colleague, as you said, of, of Fermi, she had fled to Sweden that summer. Mm-hmm. She was actually the first woman to become a full professor of physics in Germany. Good for her. Um, she took her nephew with her, Otto Frisch, and they were looking at the, the results that Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassmann had come up with. And they kind of started, they, they were the ones who realised what had happened, that mm-hmm. this energy was being given off. And they came up with the name fission, nuclear fission. Because right. um, Otto uh, Frisch, her nephew, had been fishing that weekend, <laughs> um, <clears throat> caught a bunch of fish. Ice fishing. Was excited. Yeah, ice fishing, uh, cut a little hole um, in the box, put your junk in the box, open the box, yeah. yeah. Um, And so he was like, uh, she said, what what do you think we should call it? He was daydreaming, going, oh, I love fishing. And she goes, fishing, okay, we call it fishing. And it just caught on, really. Um, That's that's the fucking true story. That's science. Yeah. By the way. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, by the way, Otto Hahn. Yeah received the 1944 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for his discovery of nuclear fission. Lisa was ignored because she was a woman. For for women everywhere, I just want to stand up and say that's not right. You don't want women getting too uppity, right, and thinking that they can think like a man. We've got to shut that shit down. (laughs) Who knows where it will end? In this house, it's too fucking late. Let me tell you about that. We'll, we'll talk about that off the show. Uh, no, but see, the thing was that she, uh, Lisa Meitner had Jewish ancestors, but she considered herself a Protestant. She was baptized at a very young age, actually in infancy. Uh, but again, it doesn't matter what she thinks. It's what the Nazis leading the country think. And they're going to take one look at all of her aunts and uncles and relatives and grandparents and they go, no, you're a Jew, so you're right. She had to get the hell out of there. So all of her future uh, contributions were going to go to another country just because of their stupid racism. Mm. Are you funny? Well, I don't know. <laughs> you're very funny. You must be a Jew, because Germans, V is not funny. No. V has no sense, no sense of humor. Just ask Ray. That was the test. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, now they also realized that during the uranium uh, breakdown of the the breakdown of the uranium nucleus, two neutrons were released, and then they started thinking, well, if you could use those neutrons to break apart the nuclei of other uranium atoms, Mm -hmm. then a chain reaction could be created, which would release a lot more energy, ergo H.G. Wells, ergo Leo Zillard, um, and ergo, I don't even know what ergo means, but there you go, ergo, ergo. Now, Leo Leo had travelled, I mentioned earlier that he was a big fan of H.G. Wells, he'd actually Mm -hmm. travelled to London in 1929 to meet H.G., Wow. And to buy the rights to one of his books. And a few years later, he read The World Set Free. And in 1933, when he was uh, a Jewish refugee uh, from Nazi Germany now, living in London, mm-hmm. as you said earlier, when he heard Rutherford's moonshine speech, he realized that a chain reaction could be created and therefore you could create a bomb. Um, and this is something that uh, now, in you know, by the the where are we with uh, 1938? Uh, so how many years later? So five years later, they mm-hmm. now figured out actually how you could actually do that. Right. 
pretty impressive. By the way, yeah. You said before Zillard patented the idea of the cyclotron. I think he also patented the idea of the atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. The uh, the chain reaction part, yeah. Which, uh, I mean, that's a good way to make cash, I reckon. <laughs> uh, he, you know, I'm thinking, yeah. I have patented the idea of a fucking atomic bomb. Every time you use one, yeah, he but- said... <laughs> It's a bit like micro, uh, Bill Gates, <laughs> the famous deal that he did with IBM. He said, look, you can buy MS-DOS for $100 million, or you can just pay me $1 for every computer you ship it on. And they said, I oh, will take that one because no one's ever going to buy a PC. Then, right. um, you know, they ended up having to pay him yeah. $27 gajillion. <laughs> dollar um, at a time. Yeah. Zillard had the same idea. He said, "Look, you can buy you can buy the rights to the Tommy Bob for for a hundred million dollars, or you can just pay me one dollar every time they use one." <laughs> and uh, you know, he was very disappointed with that decision. Barry and Stan got involved in that yeah. um, negotiation. Uh, they branched out from marketing into uh, <laughs> franchising and licensing. <laughs> Didn't really take off after that because he only made two dollars, and they right. were like, uh, "Well, there's lots of tests going yeah. on, I guess." But uh, he, he said, "Oh, you don't have to pay me for the test. Just pay me for when you use it to kill people. That's all. That's that's right. you know." Because that's enough. what it's there for, right? Uh, no, in all seriousness, he painted the idea, but then he was worried that the Nazis would manage to get it off him somehow. Yeah. So he transferred the rights over to the British Admiralty because he thought, <laughs> "Hmm." <laughs> Who is somebody more evil than the Nazis? Let me see. Which country currently controls 25% of the landmass of the globe and the, and the global economy? Which country has spent the last couple of hundred years of their naval dominance just invading third world country after third world country and uh, committing massive acts of genocide against their people and, uh, and uh, you know, raping and pillaging their natural resources. I know, I'll give it to the British. That's what he decided. I would like to defend the British by saying, yes, I think they would steal it too, but he's got a slightly better chance of getting some cash out of the British than the Germans, but I'm probably wrong. I'm just trying to be nice because I'm thinking about moving there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know how fiscally solvent the British were after World War II? <laughs> Rolling in cash, they were. Anyway, um, where are we up to time-wise? Let's just stop and do a time check. One hour, okay. Um, so he didn't make any money, Paul Leo, out Aww. of that. Uh, but, you know, so that's, that's, that's the way startups go sometimes. Um <laughs> So he moved to New York then to work with Fermi. Now, Meitner and Frisch communicated their findings about nuclear fission to Niels Bohr in January 39, just as he and Fermi were going to give a speech at a conference on theoretical physics in New York. They presented the findings of the Germans and, and, and the uranium and the, the energy that was being released mm-hmm. and the concept of fission and the concept of uh, chain reaction to the American physicists uh, at this conference. Then in March of 1940, scientists working at Columbia University, so this is where the Americans get into the game. Up to now, it's been British and Germans, and, you know, a little bit of Swiss, a little bit of Danish, and all that kind of stuff, but mostly, you know. Sorry. uh, You know, that, that... just because it looks like it has cream when you squeeze it doesn't mean it's a Danish ray. <laughs> Keep telling does. you that. <laughs> did, 
The scientists in Columbia discovered that uranium-235 mm-hmm. was the best material for fissioning with slow neutrons, not the uranium-238 mm-hmm. that everyone else was working with. Now, the problem is, is that uranium-235 made up 1 140th <laughs> of the uranium found in nature. Damn. You have to separate the 235 from the 238. Mm-hmm. And you needed a lot <clears throat> of a lot of uh, 238 to get 235. Right. Um, so this is going to be a problem. Yeah. Now, it's still doubtful that a chain reaction would work. No, it's a theory. Uh, and there, there wasn't enough 235 to be able to put it to the test. They needed to get more 235. That was going to cost a shit ton of money. <laughs> Which is a who real has it? Who has a shit ton of money? The government. Uh, and, yes, I did pronounce that with Bs. The government. Now... <laughs> How are they going to get the attention of the government? Right. Um, this is 1939. The American government's not even in the war yet, technically. Mm-hmm. Uh, still trying to pull the country out of the Great Depression. Um, how are they going to get the Americans on board? So how about getting the most famous scientist in the world to get their attention? This is the plan that Barry and Stan came up with, and this one, unlike... Um, you know, the the licensing of the atomic bomb actually worked. Good for them. So um, before I read this, do you want me to pause to give you an opportunity to say something funny or um, intelligent or um, anything? Um, I'm over for 2 on funny and intelligent. No, uh, please, please continue. On the 2nd of August, 1939, Albert Einstein sent a letter to FBR, FBR, FDR, <laughs> the other guy. Not Franklin Bobby Roosevelt. That was his. Uh, Before yeah. you go on, can I just re- uh, just ask? Oh, now I, now I was, you want to say something? Well, I was just, right. no, you, I'm sorry. I apologize. You had a chance I, before, but I you'd rather mean, interrupt me mid flow. Your flow. Yeah. Did, how much of the letter did Einstein write, or are you going to cover this later? I apologize. Well, I don't know exactly how much. Okay. I, I assume that he and Leo Zillard wrote it together. Okay. Um, do you know? Do you have a breakdown? Well, Did you I, deconstruct it? No, I, I pretty that Zillard had written most of it, um, which is why I was just asking. But again, it's, it's just, uh, I, you know, just one of those little nit things in history that Einstein didn't sit down and write a letter out of concern. He was, he was certainly encouraged by, uh, by uh, uh, Zillard. So again, I just, I just wanted that pinned down the best we could. Um, yeah, so I think they, they kind of wrote it together. Okay. They sat down, you know, snuggled up, right. wrote a letter. Like Paul Ringo. This is the letter oh, yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. that Einstein sent to FDR. It said, Sir, some recent work by E. Fermi and L. Zillard, which has been communicated to me in manuscript, leads me to expect that the element uranium may be turned into a new and important source of energy in the immediate future. Certain aspects of the situation, which has arisen, seem to call for watchfulness and, if necessary, quick action on the part of the administration. I believe, therefore, that it is my duty to bring to your attention the following facts and recommendations. 
In the course of the last four months, it has been made probable through the work of Joliot in France, as well as Fermi and Zillard in America, that it may be possible to set up a nuclear chain reaction in a large mass of uranium by which vast amounts of power and large quantities of new radium-like elements would be generated. Now it appears almost certain that this could be achieved in the immediate future. This new phenomenon would also lead to the construction of bombs, and it is conceivable, though much less certain, that extremely powerful bombs of this type may thus be constructed. A single bomb of this type, carried by boat and exploded in a port, might very well destroy the whole port together with some of the surrounding territory. However, such bombs might very well prove too heavy for transportation by air. The United States has only very poor ores of uranium in moderate quantities. There is some good ore in Canada and the former Czechoslovakia, while the most important source of uranium is in the Belgian Congo. In view of this situation, you may think it desirable to have some permanent contact maintained between the administration and the group of physicists working on chain reactions in America. One possible way of achieving this might be for you to entrust the task with a person who has your confidence and who could perhaps serve in an unofficial capacity. His task might comprise the following. A, to approach government departments, keep them informed of the further development and put forward recommendations for government action giving particular attention to the problem of securing a supply of uranium ore for the United States. B, to speed up the experimental work, which is at present being carried on within the limits of the budgets of university laboratories by providing funds, if such funds be required, through his contacts with private persons who are willing to make contributions for this cause, and perhaps also by obtaining cooperation of industrial laboratories which have uh, the necessary equipment. I understand that Germany has actually stopped the sale of uranium from the Czechoslovakian mines which she has taken over. That she should have taken such early action might perhaps be understood on the ground that the son of the German Undersecretary of State, von Weissacker, is attached to the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Berlin where some of the American work on uranium is now being repeated. Yours very truly, Albert Einstein. Mm. What do you think of that letter, Ray? Does it does it get the cockles of your uh, nether regions tingling? I, if you're FDR, yeah. do you take that and go, <laughs> holy shit, Batman, let's get to action? At the very least, he's going he's gonna to want to delve into this, you know, tell me more about the bomb, what's the possibility, what's the feasibility. It's got his attention, and um, as we know, uh, ba, 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 as the actual... War hasn't started. Germany has not invaded uh, Poland yet. He's got some. He's got a little bit of free time on his hands. So yeah, I think this is something he should be concerned about. But obviously, within within thirty days, he's about to be twenty nine. Whatever thirty days, he's about to be a lot more concerned. Well, in in actual fact, when he read the letter, he went, eh, eh, oh, eh, "Doesn't do, doesn't get me? Are you letting me down? It didn't do it for he's him. Like, it didn't do it. Didn't for do him. it." Didn't do it for him, no. The letter was delivered to him by Alexander Sachs, a Wall Street economist who sat on the board of Lehman Brothers, and he was an unofficial advisor to the president. He sat on a number of, like, war council type things. Mm. Long, long-time friend of Roosevelt, sort of New York aristocracy, Sachs. 
Um, and he had trouble getting in to see Roosevelt. Mm. Um, you know, obviously things are ramping up in yeah. Europe. Um, he's a little bit worried uh, on the 23rd of August. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, a couple of weeks after the letter uh, from Einstein was sent. Uh, the Nazis in the Soviet Union signed their non-aggression pact. Armies are mobilising across Europe. Uh, Hitler wouldn't invade Poland until the 1st of September. But all this is going on, and Roosevelt's kind of busy. I'm kind of fucking busy, Al. <laughs> Look, love Einstein, Afro, who doesn't love a Jufro? Got a Jufro, likes to poke his tongue out at the camera. Oh, he's fucking hilarious. Uh, but really, got other, got more important things yeah, to worry about to than. Exactly. Yeah, no, fucking whether or not, you know, if you turn on a light, uh, you know, in, in, in a train, if an observer on the platform is going to see it at a different time to an observer on the train. Yes, uh, special theory of relativity, I get it. I understand it as well as anyone can. Let's Al. move on. Yes, no, no, it's, exactly. It's not. Yeah, it's not about that. It's not about that. <laughs> Was it until the eleventh of October mm. that Sachs got in to see his buddy, yeah. FDR? So full. What's that? Month and a half. Damn. No. 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 Longer. No. Two months. Full two months later. Before he gets in, and he he doesn't want to just let. FDR read the letter yeah. because he you know FDR can't read so good. He don't. He don't, tiny glasses. don't. Don't have the readings. Um, so he read it to him. Sit down. I'm going to read you this thing. Aww. So he read the letter and a separate memo from Zillard that talked about recent research on chain reactions and uranium and the amount of power and the bombs and the whole deal, um, and that the Germans were working on it. And they said, look, we, we need to do the same thing. And FDR went, eh, nah, nah, I'm not feeling doesn't, it. Doesn't, yeah. yeah, not feeling it. No, he says, you're fired. He says, this is, this is the fucking TV show, man. Like, this is the real deal. Oh, right. Um, no, he said, he, he said, it's not something he thought the government should get involved in, mm -hmm. FDR. Now, Sachs went back to his hotel kind of in shock. Yeah. Um... Spent the rest of the day meditating on a park bench. Um. Then he had an idea. Next morning, he went back to the White House and interrupted FDR at breakfast. Uh -oh. FDR said, what bright idea have you got now? How much time would you like to explain it? Sack said, sit down, shut the fuck up, <laughs> motherfucker. It's actually what he, he's got it written in his book. That's what he says. I read his book, his sit memoirs. Down, motherfucker. Yeah. Sit, sit down, motherfucker. I am sitting down. I have polio. Oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> no. Sorry. My, my bad. My bad. I forgot. You know, it's hard. You can't remember. You hide it so well. Yeah. You just look like you're cold with that blanket over your legs. We can't tell that you have withered up tiny stick legs no. under there. I mean. That's my leader. Here's what Sachs said. Mm -hmm. All I want to do is tell you a story. During the Napoleonic Wars, a young American inventor came to the French emperor and offered to build a fleet of steamships, with the help of which Napoleon could, in spite of the uncertain weather, land in England. Ships without sails? This seemed to the great Corsican so impossible that he sent Robert Fulton away. In the opinion of the English historian Lord Acton, this is an example of how England was saved by the short-sightedness of an adversary. Is that supposed to be a Had short joke? That's not funny. <laughs> Had
Had Napoleon shown more imagination and humility at that time, the history of the 19th century would have taken a very different course. Yeah, we'd all be speaking French. Eating good cheese, <laughs> uh, you know, dressing cousin. well. Right, right. <laughs> After Sachs finished, President sat there silent for a few minutes. Then he said, sorry, what was that? I wasn't paying attention. I was thinking about banging my secretary. Again. <laughs> so, so, so Sachs needed to read it a second time. <laughs> And he still, and then there's a third time. <laughs> After the fifth time, Roosevelt finally got his head out of his pants. And, uh, well, you know, if your wife was a carpet muncher, you would be thinking about getting <laughs> blowjobs from secretaries too. Anyway, it's not all dead down there, you know, my boy. My boy. <laughs> no. Eventually, when he finally got his head out of the gutter, the president wrote something on a scrap of paper, handed it to a servant who had been waiting at the table. Nigger John, he said, take this. No, Jesus Christ. Zach said, you can't call him that. Nigger John, he goes, why not? He's a nigger, his name is John. It's 1939, we can still get away with this shit. No. Leave me alone. Lord, please forgive us. <laughs> he ended it. Listen up, banging him like, uh, what's his face was? Jefferson. Jefferson. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're probably he, all banging him, but he didn't bang him in sweet love. There's a difference. <laughs> uh, it's all the context of the times, my boy. <laughs> Anywho, um, handed it to the servant, this note on a scrap of paper. The servant soon returned with a parcel. Roosevelt told him to unwrap the parcel. Mm-hmm. There was a human ear. No, sorry, that was that was a David Lynch movie I watched. Inside the parcel was a bottle of old French brandy from Napoleon's time. Damn. Which the Roosevelt family had been holding on to for like a hundred years. Was that a bit showy on FDR's part? <laughs> yeah, get like fuck off. Just because you Roosevelt. mentioned Napoleon, does that mean I gotta whip out my bottle? <laughs> yeah, my bottle of brandy from Napoleon's time. Not Napoleon brandy we brought off the fucking shelf. It's a hundred and, you know, 30-year bottle of French brandy. Oh, God. Um, President uh, told the, the, the nigger John to <laughs> fill the two glasses. <laughs> I just love upsetting Americans, man. Come on. Uh, to fill the two glasses. Then he raised his glass, nodded to Sachs, and drank to him. He said, Alex, what you are after is to see that the Nazis don't blow us up? Precisely, said Sachs. It was then that Roosevelt called in his attaché, Brigadier General Edwin Parr Watson, pointing to the documents that Sachs had brought in, said words which have become famous... Tell nigga John to come back with that brandy. That's all. I saw him snuck off. Get your ass back here. <laughs> you gotta watch no, him. No, he said. <laughs> I can't believe he's still in, still in the silverware. If you don't watch him, he said, "Pa, this requires action." Uh, he wrote oh, Roosevelt. This is right back to Einstein on the nineteenth of October, telling him that he'd set up a committee consisting of Alexander Sachs and representatives from the Army and the Navy to study the use of uranium. He believed that the U.S. could not take the risk of allowing Hitler to achieve unilateral possession of an atomic bomb. 
And that, Ray, yeah. is where we will end episode 71. I- the race is on, my friend. I want to read a review. This uh, is a great review. Uh, this is a review from uh, Beer Clark in the United States. Thought-provoking, writes Beer Clark. For those not familiar with Cam and Ray, their podcasts are what it would be like if you were sitting around drinking with your friends and talking serious history. They may digress off into offshoot... Let me start that again. They may digress into offshoot topics Mm -hmm. or completely irrelevant topics and have completely inappropriate conversations that may or may not relate to the current theme. I don't know about that. I have no idea what he's talking about. But they talk about history and dive deep into each topic. Their research is exhaustive and bring out the details that can give a whole new perspective to any topic I thought I already knew. Anyone can know that the Alter Conference shaped modern Europe and was the beginning of the Cold War, but they went through meticulous detail of what each leader was thinking, what they really knew, what their strategies were, and plenty of comments from other attendees that help you understand how the final results came about. Cam has his opinions throughout and isn't afraid to express them. But he also isn't afraid to show the facts and other views that are counter to his because this isn't about indoctrinating, it's about learning and understanding. It can challenge your own beliefs or understanding to gain new ones or help you reinforce your own. They had some side episodes about Castro that came across as a love fest for him. That's a bit harsh, I think. But anyway, I didn't come away with an I heart Castro shirt, but I did have an appreciation that Castro was not the only reason Cuba is the way it is today. America is not always the good guys I've grown up to believe. And the ever-diligent Ray. Really? That's, that's, that's the impression that he gets? Wow. Wow. Fanboy. Besides providing backup, counter-perspectives, and a fantastic grasp of the politics... Really? Is he listening to the same podcast? I don't know. Also expresses the American point of view. While that may have sounded Mary-centric, it is important important that considering the US was one half of the Cold War, that how and what the people think or thought plays into a lot of what happens. It provides the gap that Cam, admittedly, has trouble understanding. This podcast doesn't give you the straight history out of a book. It tries to make you live through the history from all sides and show that nothing is simply black and white. Personally, I had not paid for a podcast before this one and after hearing the teaser episodes and then hearing I had to pay there was screaming crying (coughs) whining and then I signed up and that was just Ray's sex life then I signed up I have a small number of podcasts that I listen to as soon as it comes out and this is one of them if you can at least open your mind to challenge what you think you know and can appreciate conversations randomly devolving into insert heinous sexual topic conversations then this is the podcast for you only snakes were harmed in the making of this podcast you damn right. Well done, Beer Clark. Nice. Well done. Thank you. Good, good. Well written. Thank you for that. Uh, 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 compliments. Nice compliments there. Shoot us an email with your address and uh, we'll send you a token of our appreciation. What of our new D back coffee mugs, mm-hmm. possibly? Did you see the D back coffee mug, Ray? Did you like that? I did. And um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Got to get one. I got to write right. a review so I can get one. Yeah. Um,. Uh, uh, I also want to read uh, while we're here. This is our latest heroes, list of our latest heroes. Um, subscribers to the show, we would like to welcome aboard Nicholas Stark, caught up with Nick in New York, uh, went out for breakfast, had a lovely time. I hadn't seen Nick for uh, 10 years. Lovely to catch up with him. Uh, oh, God. Massage uh, Massac. I'm sorry, I've probably fucking buggered that. Mass, M A C I E J. Mache? Mache. I'm going to call you paper mache. Mashak. 
um, <laughs> Polish, I guess. Mohamed Fayed, William McKay, Jim Killian, Patrick Welsh, Mick Thompson, Michael Haddock, Brendan Hurd, Felix Stone, Andrew Hung Like a Donkey, Ben Fitzgerald, Richard Morford, Dermot O'Grady, Tracy Tramble, Max Vaskov, Hayden Turner, Eric Long, uh, Gemma Lynch, Sam Decker, Lee Knight, James Thompson, David Blook, Jeff Curtin, Candice Argett, Christopher Vaccaro, Darius Piniak, John Simmons, Danny West, Dustin T, Matthew Leverington, Dan Dombrovsky, and Asia Zaragoza. Uh, they're our new DEFCON 1 uh, subscribers. And our new you. DEFCON 2 subscriber, Simon Doyle. Simon. Thank you, Simo. Simo. Uh, all right, that's uh, this one. And we'll be back next week with the next one. Uh, that's how it works. In the... Fi- in, in the famous words of uh, Fox, my three-year-old, just chill out, Dad. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. your enemies, see them driven before you, and they hear a lamentation of the women. That is-